Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. I think my upbringing as a Sikh, it's all about equality, it's all about a sense of justice, it's all about helping others. So my drive was actually, I represent my community, I represent other Asian women, I represent the working class, I represent somebody who hasn't come through the normal channels and I need to prove and I can prove that somebody like me can do this. And I think that's an incredible driver, you know, and I never saw, I didn't see the barriers. You know, for me, a a senior management was an individual I could go and have a conversation with and convince and say, this is something that we need to, and I remember one of my bosses saying, Navda, you always just follow your heart. You always follow what you think is right. You never do what you're told to do. And he said, don't stop doing that. Never stop doing that. He said, that's that's getting you to where that's you brilliant. need to be. A former BBC international correspondent and anchor, reporting from over 60 countries and hostile environments on some of the most significant stories of recent times. Honoured in the Asian Women of Achievement Awards, Chief of Communications for the Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates, and most recently, founder of content company Mirren Media, is this week's guest, Navdip Darawal. In this extended episode, we covered the challenges of growing up in an Indian immigrant family in racially charged 70s London, how she confronted racial and gender bias to build a stellar career in journalism and broadcasting in the conventional white male middle-class culture of the BBC. We discuss Navdip's perspective on the state and evolution of the BBC, today's changing media environment and the privilege of being a journalist. We also cover her perspective on risk, fear and her commitment to journalism, using data to deliver authentic storytelling. She also explains her embrace of kismet over serendipity, predetermination and the importance of carving your own path. Finally, we cover her views on the challenges India faces in the coming years and her hope for humanity. I hope you enjoy this convention-challenging, truth-seeking episode with Navdeep Darawal. Thank you for being on the Impossible Network podcast, Navdeep. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for inviting us to Barcelona to do it on this <laughs> fine day and a great view as well. It's a bit of a cloudy day today, but you do get an extraordinary view of Sagria de Fumi and the ocean when it's very clear. You can see the ocean, which yeah. is rather nice. And the greenery. We're Luckily, we're in the green part of this city, but it's all red and quite low rise. It's nice. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Look forward to getting out for a run later. So, Navdeep, you might have heard maybe at least one of the other guests on the Impossible Network, uh, a certain Dan McDougall. Mm -hmm. And we'll come to maybe talk about Dan's connection to you later. But before we start, we always like to explore your life before journalism, broadcasting content, your professional life and how your upbringing influenced you. Oh, I grew up in what's now known as Little India in Southall in uh, Middlesex outside of Heathrow Airport. Um, it was uh, when we arrived, I guess when my parents arrived in 1962, um, to that area, Heathrow Airport was a large employer of a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent, and particularly Punjab, where my parents came from. And, you know, we grew up in this town, which was a very nice, sweet little English town, which as more and more Indians came in, we experienced white flight. So a lot of people moving out as the Indians moved in. 
and is not the same recognisable place that we grew up in the 70s. I mean, it's now Indian shops, uh, sweet shops, fabric shops, wedding, finery. Um, and we grew up as little children with white neighbours on both sides. Um, you wouldn't see that today. Um, it's a very totally Indian area. Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere that I really wanted to leave as soon as I possibly could multi-ethnic indian now so crossing sort of it's um muslim and hindu it's largely um actually a lot of now actually a lot of the families have moved out to the outer areas so as they've become wealthier they've left southall and you still have a large immigrant community live there some somalians um yeah people from afghanistan so as they've become more affluent you know parents like mine they've sort of moved out to suburbs around that area Hmm. Hmm. Okay, and um, just to be clear, what year was that that you I was born in 1969. No, but the year, Um, so when you were at I think we moved there in the 1970s. Yeah, 1970s, we were bussed out to school. Uh There wasn't a local school for us, so we were shipped in coaches across, you know, (laughs) that part of Middlesex Uh to another largely white school um, where we would see parents with placards outside because it was a bus full of Asian kids saying we don't want them here. And this is the time, presumably, I sort of remember around the same time I was at school in in Bedford in England. My father moved down there and it was a time when Enoch Powell, the politician, mm-hmm. was really driving Yeah, I mean, we had the National narrative. Front, we had the skinheads come, you know, Blair Peach was killed during the Southall yeah. riots. His anniversary has just been marked um, recently, and yeah, we grew up with that whole racial tension, knowing that as a child of Asian, Asian origin, you could be attacked on the way mm-hmm. to school. Um, you know, we'd heard about cases of children that had been stabbed. Um, the police were very unfriendly to the immigrant community. Um, but we also had a lot of, you know, hope because, you know, our community was fighting back against the levels of racism we're experiencing today, which makes me really sad, is that we're seeing a kind of resurgence know, of I'm that I was going to say, it feels yeah. like it's almost come full circle. But, you know, we had heroes. We had the Southall rights guys who stood together and, you know, stood up against the National Front, burnt down the local tavern where the skinheads were meeting. We knew all of that. You know, we were small. We would be in, her, in the home and we'd hear the police sirens going off and we knew our dad was out there in the crowd and we were all kind of hunkering back home and yeah I mean significant political uprising among this so-called Asian community that was seen as quite submissive Mm -hmm. you know they were just not going to tolerate that kind of abuse women being abused children being attacked and people coming in and saying you don't belong here you know, but it, it was also, it happens in every country that's had sort of migration issues. And, you know, if I look at the, you look at the history of New York, the, the Chinese had it, the Italians had it, the Germans had it, you know, the newcomers coming in, always finding sort of uh, discrimination and, and abuse. And I suppose the same thing happened in the, in the 50s with the West Indian community coming into, into the UK. And at that time, obviously, in the 70s, and a lot of people came in from Uganda, obviously. The Irish. The, I mean, yeah. you know, you meet Irish people who talk about how they were, you know, received in, in the UK. And it's, it's sad that, that we're seeing, you know, resurgence of that, that we're seeing the ugly head of that level of racism reappear with the, 
you know, the likes of Tommy Robinson and the right wing, you know, taking such mm. a strong foothold in Britain. That's actually sad because it makes you think, actually, was it always there? Mm-hmm. Was this always been there? It's just been simmering away. Um, I think we see that with the, you know, English football. Well, um, maybe, particularly. We'll go, maybe we can come back and talk about that in a bit more detail, because I think there's an element of it's reflective of our times and economic uncertainty and fear. But let's let's go back to your childhood. Let's talk about your parental support and the guidance and direction they gave you. Um, so my parents were very um, strict. You know, my, my dad was the only son of a farmer from Punjab. He left his country to come to the UK to, you know, earn enough money to, send, to be able to send home. You know, ends up getting married in India, brings his wife over and, you know, was raising four children, working as a full-time um, construction worker that's his that was his job and he worked very hard and we always saw him working very hard he's a very principled man um um quite a scary character um very strong in his principles and his opinions and I think they came with a lot of loaded cultural baggage from India around girls the role of girls in a family so we were raised to sort of think you'll be married at 24 you better be able to sew you know, the girls who are fair and lovely will get married. And if you're really lucky, you'll have a nice mother-in-law that look after you. If you can cook, sew and speak Punjabi and be a good girl, not wear makeup until you're married. So we were kind of brought up in that bubble of, you know, only wear Indian clothes, don't cut your hair. You know, the thought of a boyfriend, you know, that was just, <laughs> that was just unheard of. You couldn't drink. It was a very restricted upbringing. Um, And yet you're being raised in the West with Mm -hmm. Western ideas of justice, Western ideas of equality. It just didn't marry. The two just didn't marry. And also my parents are Sikhs. And the Sikh faith is all centered around, you know, injustice and equality. And yet the practice of the culture very much goes against that ideal where the culture says that women's roles are secondary. And I would grow up seeing women of sort of 18, 19, never be able to realise their ambitions, never be able to dream beyond having a good husband. You know, you were kind of going to be passed from your husband to your brothers, to your, to your sorry, from your father, your, your brothers, to your husband's family. So you were like a chattel. Mm-hmm. And that's how you were raised in that sort of vacuum of what women were. And then went off to university, in fact, Bristol Polytechnic, and suddenly realised that actually, no, the world isn't like that. This country isn't like that. Women's rights are important and, you know, they have a place in the world. So I guess for me, I guess I wouldn't say that my parents supported anything that I wanted to do. They supported me wanting an education because Mm -hmm. especially my mother, who had, you know, been a teacher in India, it was critical for her that her daughters particularly were educated so they could stand on their own two feet. But it was never about a career you know, for oh, me, so it was never about a career. Even though you wasn't... were going to university, they, they expected you to come back to the family and... Well, integrate. come back to your husband. Yeah. You know, they would have arranged a marriage at a certain age and you would come back to that family and do as that family requested you to do. So yeah. you didn't ever have the freedom to think or be yourself or really pursue your own dreams. That was for someone else. That was never for you. That was never something that you could... So I wanted to do American studies. They were like, no, you should do law. <laughs> I wanted to be a journalist. That's not a very good job for a girl because how are you going to come home and cook a meal for your husband? But um, they felt doing law, you could? Yeah, because you'd have a nine to five. I and mean, with journalism, you're oh, never going to know where right. you are or yeah. who you're talking to. And, 
So I think they came with the, you know, we lived in the Indian community. So it's, you know, I can understand why they had those opinions. But actually, you know, it backfired in a way because it was my fight against that that drove me, you know, my sense of injustice, which they had given me, which drove me, you know, my sense of this is totally unfair and I need to do what I need to do and you shouldn't be stopping me because I am part of this British society as well as Indian society. And I never wanted to have the life that I saw my cousins or peers at school have. I didn't want that life and I was determined to fight for it. So if they gave me anything, they actually gave me a reason to fight for the life that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And what about your siblings? Well, my sister's a surgeon, successful surgeon. My brother's an optician and my younger brother is... A, and we're all very adventurous. Mm-hmm. We've all left home. We never wanted to go back. Um, so I guess in that sense, my father sort of doing what he did mm-hmm. inspired us in a funny way, you know, to kind of just go off and do our own thing and be very independent. At what point do you think they, they embraced your sense of rebellion and rejection of those, those traditional values and the baggage that they brought with them? I don't think they've ever... Really? Done that. No, I think it's sort of disappointment. They would see it as, you know, I think they sort of now realise because, you know, ironically, it's the girls who are seen as the burden. Mm -hmm. And actually, the two girls that they have have stood on their own two feet and become hugely successful in their own fields. And, you know, the boys are successful too, (laughs) But but I think the girls had so much going against them and to sort of fight against that and come out of it you know in the way that we have I think is mm-hmm. a strength a huge strength that we've got from them but we had a really feral childhood you know even though they, they were really strict they didn't know where we were you know we were extremely adventurous we had no childcare. I mean at one point my sister was looking after my baby brother and the teachers were kind of knocking on the door going where are these where is this child she should be at school because there's something quite paradoxical there. You'd think the sort of the intensity of the fam, the core of the family, and the the need to protect the traditions, and yet having the freedom to explore and to go out and as you say have a, a feral youth. There's a almost a dichotomy of your parents almost were struggling with their own sort of journey from India to embrace a new life in the UK, and knew that they couldn't hold you back to a certain degree, and and gave you that freedom. Um, I don't think they consciously gave us the freedom. Mm. I just think there was no childcare. Uh-huh. And, you know, they, they didn't know restrictions. They weren't the restrictions that we have uh-huh. now on children. And we had a huge park behind us. We'd play in the street. It made us really streetwise. And we were experiencing things that they probably didn't even know that we were experiencing, going off to the railway mm-hmm. station, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things as kids that they probably didn't know was was going on in the world. They must they have had a thought... sense of the, the discrimination, the potential for violence on the streets. Um, that's what I've, I think is amazing, that they were prepared and confident enough to allow you, childcare or not, to go off and, and build your own sense of identity. Yeah, up to a certain point. I think when we sort of reached puberty, 12, 13, then the kind of shackles ah, came right, right down. <laughs> you know, it's like, now you're a girl, yeah. you're a, a young woman, you can't do this in the park or... You know, it's not like we had that kind of freedom to just go off in our teenage years to do yeah. what we wanted. But they certainly didn't know what we were up to. Uh-huh. But even up into our sort of early 20s, they had no idea. We were living a double life. I certainly was living a, a double life. So I was able to carry on in these two worlds 
without one of them knowing about the other. Mm-hmm. It's probably not very healthy, but it sort of set me up for, I guess, you know, I guess you, you become accustomed to having to live like that. Mm-hmm. So what was school like for the young Navdeep? Oh my God, I was so introverted in class. Yeah. I wouldn't say very studious, I was a bit of a dreamer. Um, but I had lots of friends and I was able to sort of navigate between the kind of hardcore girls and the really studious girls. And then I found a really nice group of friends who um, were working really hard. And obviously there's a lot of Indian kids, parents on their case. Mm. You've got to become an accountant or a lawyer. You know, you've got to achieve. They've made these sacrifices for you. And so there was a real sense of we need to do this. And, And I would just kind of, I guess I just jumped on the bandwagon and thought okay well I also need to do this and I didn't have a career in mind I didn't have a projection of what I was going to do I just knew I had to get to university if I didn't want to get married Mm -hmm. and that was the driving factor that was the motivation it wasn't for an education it was to escape Mm, right the likelihood of an arranged marriage I was interviewing Manish Walter Puri on the show who was an Indian immigrant grew up in the in the uh, just uh, outside San Francisco in the Bay Area and he talked about the same type of pressures, but obviously being a male, and he said that the, you know he was the chosen one from his family because families couldn't necessarily support all their children to push them through university. But obviously, it was maybe different in the, just because of the sort of the educational system and the free education at the time in Britain that families weren't put under that economic pressure mm-hmm. that they faced in, in the US. But did you ever have a sense that within your sort of your siblings that your parents had higher expectations of your brother? Um, no, actually of my sister. Sister. Yeah. yeah, she was the oldest. She always wanted to be a doctor. You know, that's kind of like the dream scenario yeah. <laughs> for any Indian <laughs> well, family. Well, that's like. what he was. He's been <laughs> two physician parents and we told him, yeah, you're going to be a doctor. Yeah, and I think that was their sort of dream realised. And I don't think they ever thought I would achieve anything which spurred me on to do even more. The dreamer Um, Navdeep. (laughs) Yeah, the dreamer. I wasn't really going to sort of... I wasn't particularly good at anything, you know, at school. Um, But I loved my English classes and I loved history, you know, because it was a contemporary curriculum and we learned a lot about Nazi Germany and, you know, I loved all of that. I loved my history teacher and my English teachers were really cool. There were these two young 24-year-old women straight out of university college, you know, training college, and they'd come to this school where all the kids were really well-behaved, and so they enjoyed it. And I remember them taking us to our first pub and first theatre. It was the Cat, something, the Cat, the Cat Theatre or something in London. And, you know, even though we were living on the edges of London, we never experienced London. We never went on the Tube. We never went to the theatre. We didn't go to Leicester Square. You know, all the things that I see my younger cousins or Mm. nephews and nieces doing we didn't experience that it wasn't of access to us because we lived in this community and we were very much on the peripheries of mainstream society there wasn't a single white kid in my high school Mm. in my junior school yeah we would bust out to this school and my best friend was this lovely ballerina you know with blonde hair and we were great friends and you know we adored each other in high school there and it, in a way I think it was actually I don't I absolutely disagree with faith schools I disagree with the ghettoization of communities but it did reinforce and cement my identity as a Indian child Indian woman so I didn't I never felt different I never felt like this was odd or and I possibly think if I had been in a more mainstream school, white school, I would definitely have had issues, anxiety around 
identity and you know shouldn't I be going out and I never we didn't really need to question that because everybody was in the same boat it was only until we left to go and study and we were in a much more diverse situation that actually we're kind of like oh should we be drinking <laughs> should we <laughs> do you think I should have a boyfriend <laughs> you know all the kinds of things of like going out to club you know things that all young people I guess in Britain experience we just weren't experiencing them what point did you then start to get a or did you get a sense of where you were going to go beyond law? Or did you no, just I think, worked. I'm going to get it, I'm going to finish, I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to escape, I'm going to go to university, it doesn't matter what I do? Or did you I have... worked as a translator in a law centre in Southall for women whose mother tongue was Punjabi, and I would translate for them. And I found that really empowering, and you know that sort of did drive me to kind of want to pursue law at that stage. Um, but I found the degree really disappointing because it was a lot, a lot about torts and constitutional law. And I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in criminal. I was interested in probably international law I would have been really interested in. So I didn't really show a huge amount of enthusiasm <laughs> for law. I just thought it was a very textbook and I couldn't really get into it. I mean, I, I got my degree. Before you actually applied for law, was there a, a dialogue with your parents about journalism being of interest? No, I wanted to study American studies oh, oh. and I wanted to go to America oh. for a year. Oh. And they said, that's not a good idea. What are you going to be? And I said, well, I could be a teacher. I could teach English. And they said, oh, that's really, you know, you need a job and that's why you're having an education. Mm. So you should do something like law. So I did law. Yeah, and that was it. <laughs> and okay. that was it. And where was that? At Bristol Polytechnic. At Bristol. Okay. Yeah. So that was a, a fair bit away from Southall as well. So you were given, you did escape. I did escape. Sort of the inner circle. I never came back. Yeah. And what was it like in sort of 80s Bristol and Thatcherism? I suppose you were insulated to a certain insulated extent. Insulated being... and also just experiencing Western culture yeah. full on for the first time as a child who'd grown up in this Asian community, making lots of friends, exploring my freedom tentatively. And yeah, I guess leading me to what I ended up doing, you know, that was my Bristol days. I sort of think that defined or, or start, started me on the journey to journalism. So talk us through that. So where did the, that evolution begin from gravitating away from law, although you were doing the degree into journalistic? Well, we grew up and... listening to, I understand afterwards, World Service. I didn't know it was the World Service at the time. And my parents would listen to stories about, you know, what was going on in Indian politics and so on. So the radio was always kind of there in our home and in our lives and international you know <laughs> coverage was also sort of very much part of our upbringing and lives um and then one day you know the, the radio was on and there was Clive Myrie who's a BBC correspondent um based in Bristol who said you know we really need to encourage more minority ethnic um people into journalism and so I said okay well I'll go along and you know see they did this six week radio editing course at Radio 4 and I went along and did that and really enjoyed it and thought god this is great you know you get to speak to people you get to understand their lives you know I was always a really curious kid um we read a lot which was great because we had the mobile library at the end of our road which we adored and we would religiously go to and religiously go to to the main library on a on a weekend we'd walk for like an hour and a half every weekend and library was kind of like focus of our lives as children at home at home yeah yeah. and to sort of you know Tintin I know Dan sort of talks about Tintin stuff but you know all those kind of adventure tales and so on it was you know that was really inspiring 
And so I went along to do this eight-week course. What's his name, Craig? His name is um, Clive Myrie. Oh, Clive, Clive Myrie. Yeah. yeah. He was one of the sort of first black faces on news, and he was in, in Bristol. And so I did this course, and it was at Woman's Hour, and then I just sort of came up with some ideas and they said, oh, you know, your, your ideas are actually great. They're really <laughs> different. Um, and so I started making these little radio packages for Radio 4, uh, Woman's Hour and then You and Yours. And there was a brilliant producer there and she just kind of took me under her wing. And at the same time, I started working as a community worker in Bristol for um, a local centre there. And I was on the... Um, board of an organization called Sari support against racial incidents and a lot of what I was doing in the community was informing the journalism stories that I would bring to the table and they were just unique it was totally clear to me that there was no representation and no voice of these communities on the fringes of this city and they weren't being included people were clueless in the main newsroom I was sort of not in the newsroom but you could see from the makeup of the people that worked at the BBC, it was all white, mm-hmm. all middle class, all sort of university educated. Who and, and there was no voices, no representation among the community. And These were people who had problems, they had issues, they needed to be lobbying for changes in, at local council level, but they had no voice. They had no lo- voice on local radio and they certainly had no voice on, on national radio as far as I could see. And so I was really motivated by that. And it sort of was a really nice marriage of, you know, doing these sort of broadcast stories. And then they would send me out into the field in the West Country, which was totally alien to me, to go out and do these stories. It must have been quite unusual for them as well. (laughs) (laughs) But it was lovely. You know, everyone was so kind. Every time I met somebody, they were just so kind. And for me, that was an eye-opener, you know, and... It was lovely that I could experience that part of Britain that I'd never experienced growing up in where I had in Southall. So that kind of opened and up. This the was whole while world you were me. still at university when you were doing this. This no, I'd taken packages. a year out and I was doing this, and then I joined a pirate radio station, um, and they were sort of they'd sort of gone to this group of young people who'd done this editing course and said, "We're really looking for presenters for our. We're launching this new black dance music station." And I said, oh, God, I'd love to do that. You know, could I come along? And they gave me an interview, gave me a screen, a radio test and said, yeah, lovely. You know, we'd love to have you. And it was just brilliant. It was freedom on the airways. You know, you could... Based in Bristol. Based in Bristol. And it was all black dance. Do you remember what it was called? Dance. It was called FTP for the people. And it was a black dance music station. And there were so many brilliant people. And it was so much fun. You know, there was a reggae show there was like the street show there was I did the sort of community show and I could do any topic that I wanted you know and I'd have a phone in and and I played a lot of world music so it was quite a cool I sort of yeah. invented this whole little program by myself and we were in St Paul's was that after the riots yeah a long time yeah. after the riots um and it was wonderful you know because the the people were so enthusiastic and so talented and I always wonder what happened to them because it, it didn't last. I mean, the, it was the time when the government were giving an amnesty to pirate radio stations so they could have a license. And they had this big launch. It was very glamorous. It was all kind of going to be positive. And then uh, I think a year or two years later, it, the, the channel fo- folded. So that must have been around 89, 90. 92, 93, yeah, yeah. Around okay. then. Yeah. Um, and they were, they, you know, these, these were people who were playing in clubs, 
you know, they were playing in their local community. They were heroes in their local community. They were celebrities in their local community. Why didn't these people have a voice on BBC Bristol? Mm -hmm. Why didn't these people have a voice on BBC Radio 4? You know, and I had access to the BBC and I felt that it was my responsibility. It was my responsibility to bring some of that dialogue, some of those things happening in those communities into the mainstream where you are going to influence people, you're going to influence the local authorities, you're going to, you know, make a difference and change in people's opinions. Those are the platforms that really mattered. You know, we can't have these ghettos, you know, of course they serve a purpose in in communities and so on, but really they they should be on the mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think sort of, you know, Radio 1 Extra now sort of does all that kind of thing, has brought people on, but I've, I've sort of lost touch with a lot of people that I used to work with there because it's so so long ago now but you know I was really motivated by that experience you know to have a foot in both Mm -hmm. camps so that was the year out then you went back to finish yeah I went back to finish and then when you finished you said I'm definitely not doing law (laughs) no I definitely wasn't going to do law I'd sort of had my you know journalism was it for me that was what I was going to do and then so that that was the effectively my full-time job was going back to the community and doing the journalism and did you stay in Bristol or did you... No, and then I, I was uh, offered a job in Southampton at BBC South. I applied for a researcher's position, which was probably a lowly position uh, for, for me at that stage because I was broadcasting on Radio 4. Um, I took the job because I wanted to sort of, you know, move out of Bristol and do something else. And they quickly realised that <laughs> I was overqualified for the job and that I could get them access where they weren't getting any access. And at the time, I had a brilliant boss called Andy Griffey, whose parents um, both had a disability, and he was acutely aware of representation and diversity at the BBC, um, and particularly in the regions where it was it was lacking. And he sort of made me a community affairs correspondent, put me on TV, and I did loads of brilliant stuff around, you know, regeneration, you know, communities in various parts of the region. So we had, you know, we had Sussex, we had the South, we had this great patch, you know, and um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great fun. And that's where I learned my sort of toned my TV skills, mm-hmm. broadcast skills, and then decided, okay, well, I've done that. I need to go to London now. Maybe I should do the news that I watch every night on the six o'clock news or the one o'clock news that that's the next step and that's what I did so you said so were you were you quite deliberate about setting goals and following them and saying that's what I'm going to do or did you just find it was more if you were serendipitous, <laughs> serendipitously evolving your career just taking the path no I just I, I think I've always got, I think I've always gone with the attitude of why not why not me yeah. why couldn't I do that why couldn't I try that I'm sure I can do that too. So at the heart of why not is like self-confidence and self-belief. Yeah, if you've come from a, you know, you've been told all your life as a girl, you're not going to do this. And then you do. It you have, your life is all about doing what you're being told you can't do. That's not for you. And I think that's a huge driver. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going into the BBC, I would walk past the, you know, the BBC world desk and, you know, it would be full of white men from Oxford or Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I'm going to do that. I want to do that. Why what does it make you think? Because I'm sure there are plenty of other people that followed a similar path to you that became probably more compliant and less rebellious and maybe took the attitude of being intimidated by seeing that and mm-hmm. thinking, well, that's the establishment. 
I'm not going to be able to change that. Me, myself, I. Yet you were had the dogged determination and self-belief and willpower and that why not attitude. What do you think generated that? I think my upbringing as a Sikh, mm-hmm. it's all about equality. It's all oh. about a sense of justice. It's all about helping others. So my drive was actually I represent my community. I represent other Asian women. I represent the working class. I represent somebody who hasn't come through the normal channels and I need to prove and I can prove that somebody like me can do this. And I think that's an incredible driver, uh-huh. you know, and I never saw, I didn't see the barriers. You know, for me, a, a senior management was an individual uh-huh. I could go and have a conversation with and convince and say, this is something that we need to. And I remember one of my bosses saying, Navda, you always just follow your heart. You always follow what you think is right. You never do what you're told to do. And he said, don't stop doing that. Never stop doing that. He said, that's, that's getting you to where that's you brilliant. need to be. Okay. So you went to London. You were transitioning into TV. You were given advice of saying, never stop, keep believing. How did you then kick the door down and get into TV? Oh, well, I'd already started in TV in Oh, you've been doing South. some of that, right. Yeah, okay. so I'd already established yeah. myself. And again, it's, you know, it is, I guess, maybe serendipity. You call it, I call it gismet. Gismet. Yeah, so, you know, your fate, what you're meant to do, where you, you know, it's and it's a bit of luck. Uh-huh. Um, and at the time when I started looking to BBC, you know, national news, there was a woman called Jay Hunt who was spearheading. I don't know that name somehow. Yeah, she's a, she was the control of Channel 4 and she's ah, gone to Apple. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how I know, yeah. And she was young, feisty... Um, determined. Also, she had I mean, she had a huge battle on her hands because she's you know she's trying to sort of popularise and bring in new talent to the BBC when it's kind of full of stuffy old men in suits, mm-hmm. white men in suits. It's kind of gone back to that ironically. And she, in some ways, some ways I shouldn't say all of it, but <laughs> I'll qualify that. But you know, in, certainly in management, I think. Um, and she had to fight hard to change things. There was a lot of resistance to her approach, which was to bring in Richard Bilton, to bring in Catherine Marsden, to bring in me, you know, people who she felt were more reflective of society that Britain is, uh, Northern or, you know, working class, you know, from diverse backgrounds. And she was instrumental in changing the way the BBC One O'Clock News was being broadcast. It took a lot of guts on her part, I think, you know, to sort of change that and have a, mm. you know, face the resistance that she did. But she, you know, would, and we got great training. We were kind of like the new, you know, talent on the set. Um, and that was really key, I think, in sort of bringing on new people who aren't, haven't been raised to sort of think this is, well, this is my natural next progression. You know, these people who probably wouldn't have been given an opportunity or a chance previously, and she was offering that opportunity. She could see talent where she saw it, and she wanted to encourage it, and she wanted to change the face of the BBC. Um, and she did it. She did it, and she did it really well. And, you know, and I think for, for the management at the BBC, they could see that, okay, well, these people can bring something new. They are bringing a different perspective. They are much more approachable. They do simplify. They do um, engage with the audiences in a way that we've not been engaging with them and I think that sort of opened their eyes to doing things in a different you know with a different approach 
I suppose it was that time in the sort of the nineties when Britain was going through a, a national transformation. I mean, it was uh, obviously yeah, it was the, cool Britannia. Yeah, the evolution know, of the royal family having to change the institutions, exactly. the traditional institutions of Britain, coming out of Thatcherism eighties, trying to find a new identity. It all seemed to be happening in parallel. The emergence of Channel Four that was setting a new benchmark. Mm-hmm. BBC had to live up to it. So it's quite interesting that you were part of that nose cone of change happening within society yeah and it's you know it's good that the you know many of the broadcasters have continued that you know and it has given opportunity where opportunity should have been but has been denied you know or resisted in some sort of way I mean I saw a lot of colleagues who were of black and Asian origin who just simply fell by the wayside you know they didn't receive the kind of support that I received and didn't have the backing that, you know, they really needed to sort of, you know, just navigate the whole system, you know, around them. It's a very white, privileged, networked, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, most, uh, you know, elitist, I would say, yeah. in, in many ways. You know, most people, I mean, I remember going to my first board and I was confronted by four white men all asking me questions. And I thought they just want a reflection of themselves. I have to give them an answer that is reflecting what they want to hear. And I didn't do that. Obviously, I talked about my experiences and what mattered to me and, you know, the patronizing use of community leaders, you know, all of this terminology, all of this kind of, you know, and I would challenge and I continue to challenge. I continue to challenge when I was a journalist freelancing with Radio 4 I you know, I made it my mission to challenge the, you know, the senior management about portrayal, about the, the kind of narratives that were being played out on the news. What side were we on during a riot? You know, were we perceived to be on the police side? You know, all of these kind of challenging questions that needed to be posed to decision makers and the, mm. and the news editors. Today we're, we're in the midst of a, a global debate around diversity, inclusion the Me Too movement. And back in those days, in the, sort of the, in the 90s, and I was in advertising, Britain as a country at the time was still very class-driven. It was very male, white, elitist groups running organisations and sectors we were in. How, did you, how do you look at that time and the challenges you faced in comparison to the challenges women face today? I think, I remember a very senior broadcast, female broadcaster who's a presenter, fantastic woman, saying to me, oh, you know, it'll never change. It's, in my lifetime, it won't change for women. Mm-hmm. And she must be in her 70s now. And I think she, you know, she had a point, you know, she'd really struggled against it, even though she was a senior star in the, you know, in the BBC, in, in BBC News. And I, I actually don't watch the BBC as much as mm-hmm. I probably should because I feel that it doesn't still doesn't reflect a lot of what I'm interested in or the way I want to hear news. I listen to the Today programme, you know, it's brilliant to have Michelle Hussein there, um, but I really do feel it's still an institution preaching to others who are part of institutions. Mm-hmm. And I, I strongly feel that it lacks still lacks our diversity, and particularly to do with class. Yeah. You know, I, I, that really frustrates me because... You know, you can have a nice, you know, broadcaster who's black or Asian, but they may have gone to Oxford or Cambridge or they may have gone to a top university They probably went to private school. Mm-hmm. And the fact is you, you're rarely going to see a working class white boy coming through the ranks. That for me is, you know, it, I mean, that's just terrible that we don't have that reflection. Or they might have we a don't... voice on Radio 
one extra. Yeah, but not or, on Radio 4 where exactly, yeah. politicians mm-hmm. are tuning in every morning. You know, the people that you really do need to influence are listening at that time and you're not given a voice on the kind of prestigious mm-hmm. programme that requires a diversity of voices and, and opinions. And that's a shame because, you know, education seems to be the big divider in Britain. You know, the educated and the not educated, the uneducated, as it were, you know, don't have a... I remember sitting in in a board thinking, if I was a a single mum of 18 years old and I'd raise my children and they'd all, you know, I'd done that successfully and I'd, you know, managed to get through my life, you know, by hook or by crook, I'm a success story. Yeah. But the BBC management would look at me as a single mum or an 18-year-old, they would just, I wouldn't even be at the table. You know, I know now that they've changed a lot of the, you know, requirements for for applying for for jobs at the BBC to try and make it much more equal. You know, they're bringing in diversity boards and so on. But, you know, where it was based, when we were based in White City, I would do a story on knife crime, you know, literally around the corner, five-minute walk around the corner. And I would just come back thinking how outrageous that these people on your doorstep don't have a voice in this building why is that why don't they have a voice why are they why aren't you going to those schools and bringing those kids into this building and actually making them it's such an intimidating thing though you know I remember my first experience going into white city from the regions and you know this is the location for the bbc and it's a huge huge building and you know I remember it was a night shift and the only black people I saw were cleaners and there were kind of a few, you know, white staff who were doing overnight shift. They Not once did they speak to any of the cleaners. Not once did they interact with any of the cleaners. Same in advertising. I mean, the only people, and the one thing that's different in advertising, you tend to find that it's the, the planners and the account people come from the more privileged backgrounds and go through university. But in the creative field, it is, there is opportunity because it's kids that come through art schools that, may have come from working class backgrounds and comprehensive education and make it in. There are probably the brightest people in advertising, but they are the creatives. But there's not really traditionally been a role for them in the, the more cerebral sort of the the, the outwardly facing um, roles in advertising industry. Same with same back in the day, I worked at a very big global ad agency, I remember in, in Paddington, which was surrounded by housing estates and the only black people there at the time pretty much were the night staff and the security guys. And you go, this is, it's, it's crazy. But I think things are, things are changing. I think BBC, and, and unless they change dramatically, I think they've missed an opportunity because I think Absolutely. people, I think people like, and I'll give one example. I listened to um, a podcast called Distraction Pieces with Scroobius Pip, who's a, a rapper, and he's brilliant. He's, an, he's evolved to become an actor. He still does a little bit of rap. And he's got this brilliant podcast where he interviews a diverse range of people. And he would be the sort of person that should have a voice on the BBC. But this is a guy that is connected to the street, that comes from a working class background, and would be the type of person that could help BBC become relevant for the time. So that's just one example. But these people have now got a channel. They can find themselves and a voice and an audience. And the BBC are weaker for it, and it's tra- it's it's tragic because it's supposed to be for looking. No, I, th- I think you're right. You know, they've lost an opportunity, and where they've lost, people like Google and Facebook mm. and 
Twitter and Instagram have gained those audiences and they've yeah. gained international audiences and they are diverse and they are reflective, more accurately reflective mm. of mainstream society and all of society because we all have access to it. We are all content creators and the BBC have missed out. I mean, I remember being in, in India and thinking, God, are we back to the British Empire here? Mm. Because the locals are treated like local staff. You know, the, the big white men come in from London and they do all the stories and they're the experts. And, they're, and they were coming, churning out stories about holy cows. You know, I just thought, oh my God, this is not, this cannot be happening in this era when, you know, this is a, a country on the cusp of change. You know, these people's, young people's lives are going to change dramatically. They're the future consumers of, you know, um, goods or services they have an incredible voice you know as they gain more economic momentum this is going to be a country that has a voice mm -hmm. and it's going to be a young voice and it's going to be a relevant voice in the global economy you know and the bbc's kind of you know captured that to some extent but i i feel that they've sort of you know left themselves behind because i don't go to the bbc for my news i go to a diverse range of content to inform myself because I don't feel I want that one perspective and we're not one person I am not just an Asian woman just a mum just a, a vegan or you know whatever it is that I am you know we are citizens that have many facets to us mm -hmm. and in the global economy the fastest thing that's happened is that communication has suddenly opened up and we are able to influence each other in a way that we've never been able to do before you know you used to be able to go you know, the BBC was like a passport. You know, you'd go into the developing world and parts of Africa or a little village in India and the BBC had a voice because they had the World Service or they had local programmes, you know, in local languages, which is amazing, you know, and you'd go there and everyone knew the BBC brand. But actually, over the last few years, I found that it's become a lot less relevant mm -hmm. given that you can, anybody can pick up a cheap mobile phone and the internet is available for everybody. So it is WhatsApp, it is Facebook, it is alternative social media, which brings its own dangers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it brings, you know, but, it, you know, for me, you know, when I look at the fact that Google can employ people in all over the world, South America to Africa, bring those diverse voices to a single platform the BBC's had access to that for, for years yeah. and they and haven't they achieved it. Yeah. They missed that opportunity. And look what Facebook and Google and all the others have been able to create in a very short space of time. And I know we live in our own little bubbles, you know, in our own little communities online, but actually you've opened up the world to so, so many people and given them information that they wouldn't have had access to and a voice that they wouldn't have, a platform where they wouldn't have had you know, and it's a shame because, you know, we rely on the truth and accuracy of the BBC and other international broadcasters who have that kind of access to, to give us mm -hmm. to give us a voice. And there is a danger in citizen journalism of what's truth and yeah. and what's not. And we do need an overarching voice. But is that necessarily the voice of a white man or a white institution that is London based? Um, rather than one that reflects much more the diversity. And it does in lots of ways, but I don't think nearly enough. Well, I was going to get do. to this whole question about where the future of journalism is going, but we might as well just cover it now. I never thought we'd end up really talking about BBC so specifically, but I think given 
the, I mean, the point you made about citizen journalism and the risks of that, the, obviously the risks, that, and, or not the risks, the actual experience of what we're encountering with fake news, leaving aside the technological developments in terms of what's going to happen with um, manipulated video that can create God knows what type of content that's manipulated, there's nothing based in fact whatsoever. If the BBC or institutions like the BBC had embraced diversity from around the world, not just women and LGBTQ. They could have had a representation of content delivery journalism that would immediately have more gravitas, more believability because of the diversity. With it remaining so white, centralised and UK-controlled, UK yeah, you can have a certain amount of believability because of the scale of the BBC, but think about what the scale could have been and the believability factor and the engagement factor. I think they've been taken by storm. I don't think anybody, I don't think they could have realised what was going to happen. And, you know, the, the worrying thing is for, for younger audiences, how do they capture that young audience? How do they capture that young audience? Most people through Facebook or, you know, their various sort of social channels access people who are abroad mm. now. So what goes on the US is just as relevant, much more than it. We've always been influenced by the, mm-hmm. by the USA, but it has become much more relevant to, to young people in, in the UK because it's much more accessible. You know, we have it all the time. It's almost like Instagram has created a level playing field. Facebook has created a level playing field in so many ways because other people are able to share their stories or something will go viral or, you know, whatever in a way that the BBC hasn't been able mm-hmm. to do because it's you know decision makers are as you said uk based and don't have experience of those countries and yet the people that they do work with do have experience and opinions mm-hmm. from those countries and i don't think they you know that that they've they started to on world service they've always done so on world service and you know used local reporters but you always get the feeling you know, and I certainly have the feeling that, you you know, that the big footers or the, as we used to call them, you know, or the people of real importance or the people who really should be trusted and authentic are from London, mm-hmm. are based in London. And you guys are kind of just there to give us the relevant information, but you don't really have the voice that you should have on equal footing. But the BBC, you say they're taken by storm. I think they just ignored the signs. I mean, I, what was it, the guy that went to New York Times, Mark... Thompson. Mm. I mean, he was bringing in real innovation at one point. And I think at that time in the early 2000s, there was an opportunity to see the signs that were going to happen. I mean, there was, was plenty of people out there talking about from the 70s onwards as to where media it's was going to go. It's a dinosaur though, isn't it? I mean, it moves really slowly. It does move slowly, but it could have actually taken risks. It could have created some form of innovation hub using something like the World Service to try and create a new template for news and journalism that tapped into the already existing local network. And I think it was, a, I think it's sad because I think that, I think there's still opportunity for the BBC to continue to reinvent. And, and I think there's, there's still a vacuum out there in terms of who's going to dominate this news or journalism. And I think, I think what, I think what holds it back is, is it's an institution mm-hmm. and it's a publicly funded that, of course, you know the, institution yeah. and it's accountable and i think it, it 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 fear holds it back and it isn't a risk taker you know when you look at the likes of sky news and so on they'll just you always just say oh, we're always going to get you know stumped by sky news because they'll get to the story first they're agile they're faster you know they're they you know they're 
they put the money into where it, where it should be going rather than layers and layers of management. And I think, you know, that holds it back, the fact that it's an institution and people behave in an institutionalised manner. Mm-hmm. So I think that's not good for its overall health. You know, and I also think that that's actually been an asset for me, that I am a risk taker and I don't follow the rules and I don't want to be institutionalised. You know, people... I've heard so many people say, oh, you know, I've got to stay for the pension. You know, and you just think, how absurd. You're, you're going to actually not do what you believe in doing. And there's so many people come into it with the good intention and, you know, they want to make a difference and they want to make a change. But I love I love Channel 4 News. It's a real risk taker. It should be a beacon of what news should be. You know, it's it feels like it's relevant from all over the world. You know, it feels like you have a voice from every continent it just doesn't suffer that you know lack of diversity it just feels like they've really made you know an ambitious attempt at reflecting all of society and does so many stories that the BBC doesn't do Mm -hmm. let's segue into into your journey specifically in the BBC because you cover quite a broad range of of roles could you give us just an overview of the experience of the adventure of covering everything from corporate malpractices to natural disasters to conflicts to coups it's quite a journey I would sort of use one word which is privilege I think it's an incredible privilege you know when someone you're effectively a stranger entering into someone's home you know taking away their voice taking away their story and giving it to the world you know you're a point of trust you know somebody's giving you in often the most traumatic experience you know that that they've just had or you know something that's torn their lives apart they're trusting you with their story and you're giving them a voice and I think you know I can think of you know people always ask well you know who have you met who have you been most influenced by who do you who do you feel inspired by it's never a politician it's never a celebrity it's never anybody who is so called successful it's the little girl who grabs you by the hand and scuttles like a little goat through the rocks of a mountain to take you to her destroyed home in the aftermath of an earthquake where her little brother has been killed and her mother's stoically trying to sort of keep the family together and get some food for them that is just you cannot describe the feeling of being humbled Mm -hmm. of feeling that you have such a huge sense of responsibility to capture these stories and tell them in the best way that you possibly can so that they do have an impact you know whether it's a story that's about welsh miners in the valleys of the west side western side of, of the uk or whether it is people affected by by the tsunami in Sri Lanka, all those stories are the the same. You know, they're all the same. There's no difference in the impact that you're trying to have. You're trying to communicate their story. And it's a responsibility and it's a privilege. And that's how I see it. I've never seen it as a journey of achievement. Oh, I, you know, I went from pirate radio, I was a community worker. You know, I became a, you know, face of of the BBC. I, I see it as a, it's shaped me it's humbled me it's a it's a privilege to do um and it's a responsibility to do it well Mm. and that's what I take away from it it's never been about a journey of achievement you must have found yourself in numerous situations where you were at risk as a journalist how do you deal with that 
I don't think you ever think about risk. I don't think it's something that you are consciously thinking about. Um, I think you think about it afterwards and you think, gosh, that was a, you know, that was incredibly risky. But you're all in the same boat. You know, you have colleagues that are with you. It's, it, you know, the, the great thing is you, you're like a family. You know, when you work out in the field, you know, you're bonded with the people that you work with, you know, because it's, it's such, you know, you've got tight deadlines, you're in, you know, often horrific conditions. And you're sort of in a, in a way, I guess you're in that sort of little protected bubble and you don't see risk. You know, but then one of my friends was was killed in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. He was an Irish cameraman. And I had to go with my editor, you know, to, to break the news to his wife. And that was devastating, you know, for her. And that sort of brings into sharp focus the risk that journalists do take. I've never felt that I've had to take any particular risks you know, because somebody else's risk always feels far greater. But I guess even getting in a car and going to a remote location is a risk. But you, mm. you, you, I don't think you ever think about it mm. in that sense. You're, you're so focused on, you know, getting to the location, finding the story, telling the story. I mean, you talk about story a lot. Obviously, story's at the heart of it. And storytelling in all different forms has formed that red thread that's run through everything you've done. Um, can you just talk to us? Uh, through the journey to what inspired you to focus on storytelling beyond journalism in the, the creation of your own company, uh, Mirren? Everybody has a platform now and it's a great opportunity to tell other people's stories that may not necessarily be told. Mm-hmm. So there's a gap there and people are moved by stories, they're motivated by stories. You know, if you're doing a story for an NGO, it's critical that they explain their story so that people understand what they're doing, they can witness what they're doing. You know, they can, I think, you know, so many brands and companies and NGOs and broadcasters are under scrutiny now in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're having to be forced into telling this relevant story as accurately as they can to reflect what's going on on the ground and I think that makes employees feel positive about where they work you know it feels that the people who engage with them the countries that they're operating in they need to be telling their narrative and it's a really creative way of doing that and I love the creativity of the challenge of sort of telling those kinds of stories okay it's not a natural disaster um, but the same principles apply you know where's where's the detail in the story that's going to hit home you know where's the beautiful image that's going to move somebody you know it's taking action or you know what is this company actually doing of good in this country you know where they've got a footprint and they are accountable to the country people that they're in and to the governments that they're in to explain what they're doing in a positive way and they are having impact and I think you know what's what's nice is that you know having the credibility of journalism helps you to sort of, you know, it it certainly gives you the respect that you need from the people that you're working with to say, we know in the field that this is going on and this truly reflects and accurately reflects what you're doing. And it must be also a challenge in today's environment where obviously in the last five years, I think there's been, what if it's five, six, seven years more content produced than in the rest of human history, that the constant stream of additional content that's often termed storytelling, you're facing that 
battle for attention with whoever you're representing. So that must bring with it a certain additional pressure to what you had when you were a journalist, where you got a guaranteed delivery mechanism through platforms like the BBC. I mean, you can, you know, you can, I mean, we've, I've just been doing some filming with, you know, it's a, a, a blind entrepreneur and, you know, he said this wonderful line about people saying, constantly telling blind people, no, no, you can't go on holiday. No, you can't, you know, work in this place. No, you can't do this. No, you can't. It's just like, no, no, no. And, I, and you know, using the faces of the people that he's talking about to illustrate that is so powerful for people to actually relate to. And actually say, these are the people you're saying no to. It's so simple sometimes. It's so simple. And, it, you know, you need it to hit home because you really care about this and you want people to understand and you want them to care as equally as you do. And I think that always comes across in really strong content and really good content, that it is genuine and it's authentic. You know, and I think that's what the journalism brings is that authenticity. These are the real people. They, you know, you can't make somebody say something that they're not, they don't believe and I think that's that's critical and that often I guess what corporations may be guilty of or brands may be guilty of is they don't actually know what they're sitting in an office somewhere in London or New York or wherever and they don't know what's going on in the field they don't actually know the good and the bad and I think as storytellers you can sort of feed back to them and say this is this is working this is this is fantastic this is great you should be doing more of this this is the story that you can tell and the impact that it will have with your relevant audiences whether that's the employees that work you know in those countries with you and have have not had a voice in the mainstream structure of the company this is what they're doing they're doing it really well they're innovating and they're bringing that story back to your corporation and you can implement changes similar to that and see that you're having an impact. Mm-hmm. So the audiences are different, but you can relate the content to them. I mean, the company you created is it's called Mirror Media. And I think the way you describe it, it has a mission to tell stories shaped through instinct data, journalism and academic research. Is that something that you feel creates a, a unique territory in this space away from obviously traditional journalism and content creators, and let's say content creators at the more the brand and advertising side of the industry, and was it a, a conscious decision to bring together these different facets to? Yeah, I think you've got to make stories. content that's distinct mm. from the rest. And you know, as I said, you know, going back to this authenticity, these are the real voices. These are real people. This is real situations that we're bringing to you from places that you may not have heard from or as a young successful entrepreneur running her business and creating employment for the local people around her you know we'll uncover things that they may not have even considered and the impact that it has on on their lives and their communities to sort of encourage companies to keep doing that good work I mean I worked for an agency called McCann that uh, its moniker was truth well told and in a world today where truth has has never there's never been at a, as much of a premium and in a world that's infected by fake news and fake information and manipulated um, content engineered, whether it be through agencies or influencers on Instagram, truth is something that we should strive for. And you're on a mission to tell stories that you say are shaped by instinct, data, journalism and academic research, which feels to me is, <laughs> comes closer to truth well told than any agency could ever claim. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what the basis of journalism is, you know, to have your accurate information, to make that relevant to your audiences, to find the authentic voice in the story and tell it in the most truthful and impactful way that you possibly can. That's journalism. To me, that's what we've done. That's what we've been trained to do. It's an instinct that you learn as a journalist. Is this a story that is true? Is this, you know, is this a, it's not about whether it's believable. Can we make it believable? Is this an honest reflection of what's going on in the field? And I think some companies might not want to hear the truth sometimes and I think it's about us challenging with data with you know research with the accuracy that we can Mm -hmm. find and bring that back to them and say no this doesn't work in the way that you believe but it works in this way and this is the story that you need to tell. I mean I mean where has serendipity played its part across your journey through journalism into content creation? Whether it's I think it's about I think it's about you know for me it's about life milestones it's being a child growing up with storytelling my mum was a wonderful storyteller you know she would regale stories about the Sikh gurus every night she would you know tell us these amazing stories of miracles and you know magical sort of images of India so we kind of grew up with that so storytelling has sort of been in our veins and I think being a curious child and a curious adult and then being sort of driven by this mission to give the voice you know, give a voice to those who are largely unheard has sort of been a, a driving factor. I, sort, I, I think I come with a very different attitude. I don't sort of see it as serendipity. I see it as my path that was already written for me. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that comes from my sort of Indian background. You know, I see it as this was meant to be. I was meant to meet these people along my journey. And this journey was always about making choices that actually this was predestined uh-huh. that I would do this and that I'm not afraid to sort of step out of my comfort zone because I feel some way that there's a safety net there which is preordained <laughs> in a way that, you know, and I, I've moved my life through my life-changing experiences, becoming a mother, being able to do take the kinds of risks that I previously took as a journalist because I have two children two small children I don't really want them growing up without a a parent I'm married to a journalist so both of us couldn't sort of do what we what we did so it was a kind of maneuvering away from somewhere where we could still do what we love doing which is storytelling you know and continue doing it in a global way which again we know we've both had the privilege you know to be able to do and you know bringing all the wonderful rich experiences from Europe, Asia and Africa and the kind of people that we've been motivated by and bring that all together. You know, I'm sort of less a believer of serendipity and more a believer in carving your own path Mm -hmm. and taking your own path. And and that path, to some extent, a large extent, already having been written for you. So I was meant to do this. I was meant to meet the people that I have met in the way that I did meet them. We could get into, into a very interesting existential sort of discussion around free will and determinism. Um. <laughs> maybe that maybe that's what makes it easier for me. Yeah, that I don't see it as a self, you know, as, as determination. Oh. I see it as gizmet. This is yeah. what's, this is what's written for me. Uh-huh. This is where I have to go. Is gizmet a Sikh 
No, um, it's a Hindu. Hindu. Hindu Indian K I S M E T. Kismet. Kismet, okay. And my son always used it. He said, that's kismet. If you're horrible, somebody's going to be horrible back to you. Mm. That's your kismet. Karma, actually. He calls it karma. Yeah, we call I it kismet. Okay. I call it kismet. Churchill is quoted as saying, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the capacity to continue that counts. Actually, I don't think it was Churchill that actually said it. I think it came from an ad, actually, believe it or not, but it's been misappropriated. Um, in your case, I'm sure there have been lots of stories where failure could have been fatal. Um, how do you? Uh, we asked you about fear, actually. I talked to you about fear. You said that you don't really have failure and fear. No, do you know what I do fear? I fear what uh, was probably ingrained in me by immigrant parents is, is poverty, mm-hmm. which is ludicrous given that I'm not poor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and But it's always around the corner. Somehow it feels like that's the one thing you're trying to... You're always so close to it. Uh-huh. You know, the fact that I was a community worker, you know, I didn't grow up in a privileged household. I didn't go to a private school... You know, I lived on the dole when I was, you know, DJing in this, you know, ex-pirate radio and the, and station. The dole, and the dole for any American listening is um, state benefit, something that maybe doesn't really exist too much in the US but, yeah. or any other country that may not have that. And I think you're, you're always, I always think you're very close to, I've been raised to feel that you're always very close to stepping back into poverty. I don't have that reassurance that, you know, possibly other people have, that it's always going to be fine. You're always going to be okay. So I, I try, I guess that's the a fear that you mm-hmm. live with. If you're an immigrant's child, your mum always turning off the lights, making sure that, you know, she's able to pay the bills at the end of the month. I think you grow up with that constant feeling. That's a, per- that's a personal one. I understand, appreciate that. But how do you deal with the fear or that allows you to maintain the passion and the persistence um, when you've maybe encountered insurmountable risks or obstacles in the telling of a story? What keeps driving you forward to get to the truth? And maybe it's something to do with the way you describe the, what being a Sikh is all about. I think it's representation. Uh-huh. If, you don't, if you don't get that, you're not going to represent this perspective. You're not going to understand the perspective and your audience isn't going to understand that story fully if you don't get there and tell that story if you failed to I wouldn't say failed if you if you haven't given the different perspective if you don't have full knowledge of the facts you know it's you're always under pressure as a journalist to file for the you know next news bulletin or and you need to have the facts you need to know understand mm-hmm. the full story and able to do it justice you know if you can't do that I think that's a, ha- a job half done and I, I really don't like that feeling of not having you know, all the facts to hand or as much relevant information as possible to be able to describe, you know, what was going on. And, you know, I think the the world of sort of rolling news puts journalists under a lot of pressure to kind of quick responses. Mm-hmm. And I think you always need to have as much information at your fingertips as possible. And that, that's a good driver because, you know, you, you it's, otherwise it's just an echo of your own voice. Because you have broken some significant stories in your career. I wouldn't say broken. I'd or, say, or, you know, or, been sorry, assigned, broken, assigned to do. To yeah. Tell. yeah. Yes. And in that, do you think it was maybe the... Because like you say today, it's there's a pressure to release and to get things out into the news cycle maybe sooner rather than later and not applying the due diligence that maybe came with a rigorous BBC mm-hmm. journalistic training. Do you think that's something that has enabled 
pre predetermined for you with Mirren, but it's something that you've brought to Mirren from your time at the BBC, that ability to apply rigour. Yeah, I mean, you know, you 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 can't you know that you can't go to a location without actually knowing everything that you possibly can because you could be putting other people in danger, your team that you work with. You know, you have so many obstacles in telling a real story. If you've got something manufactured or you're doing content that's kind of manipulated, then that's kind of within your control. Being in the field and doing authentic storytelling means nothing is as you think it's going to be. Nothing is preordained. Nothing is manufactured to be what it is you're telling a real story mm. and you can't manipulate that in a way you know if you're making authentic content that's unmanipulated content you can't control how the person's going to feel you're not going to know what's in certain situations um but you go armed with as much rigorous research with as much you know pre-planning as you possibly can you know with as much contact with the relevant people that you're going out in the field to speak with so that you can go knowing what mm. your story is going to be and who the people are that are going to tell it in the best possible way and that's harder than setting up somebody to say certain things in a certain way that you want them to to be relevant to that content mm -hmm. um, I think that's it's you know much much harder to sort of be authentic but it's more impactful I mean, I've known you now since around 2015, and both you and Dan have struck me as people that are hold truth dear. How do you think we're going to overcome this erosion of trust and faith in in journalism um, due to the let's say the poisonous and effect of fake news um, and misinformation that seems to be surrounding us in the news stream now? I think actually it's it's motivated a lot of people who may not have considered journalism to actually go into journalism. I mean, you know, the unfortunate thing is it's also unleashed a whole world of content creators who are taking far greater risks than they really should be. A 24-year-old going into a, a war zone just armed with their camera, you know, becoming a, becoming a journalist. But, you know, I actually think that there is a space there for people who are prepared to dare to do it go out and that's what I guess the other flip side of citizen journalism is that so much news from for example the Arab Spring and all the kind of big you know stories of uh, recent times have been generated from those countries on mobile phones or little radio stations that have been set up you know there's a lot of in, you know ingenuity out there among citizen journalists, you know, to kind of... I mean, obviously, it's kind of trying to place them as accurate sources of news that they, you know, that they mm. do bring. And that's where, obviously, the trust is is a key issue. But at the same time, there's, you know, these new platforms that we see provide a space, sometimes a dangerous space, sometimes a very closed space, you know, for people to operate, but also provides an opportunity. We can't be in all of these places at the same time. News organisations can't be in all of these places at the same time. The straight away when an event happens, it's the eyewitness who's on the telephone straight to the broadcaster yeah. telling that story. And I think increasingly we're relying so much more on the voices of ordinary people to tell stories. And that's a huge shift, I think, 
and you know the fact that it's, it is rolling news the fact that we have so many platforms to engage with the fact that people want to know for, on twitter what's happening straight away you know eyewitness accounts and so on that's really changed the face of journalism because it's there it's relevant it's now it's people want to hear the story they're so used to now instant news mm. you know whichever form that it takes and when there are so many sources for that news so many creators of that news now and it's a huge job to kind of and there, you know hopefully there, you know, there will be an automated system a technological solution to, to you know provide us with that you know ability to sift out what is accurate and what isn't accurate and hopefully you know the, the way that technology plays a role in business and that's been one of the great things about you know working in in Mirren is seeing the role technology a lot of our stories are technology based is seeing the role and the, and the difference technology does make mm-hmm. and how that you know can change lives in an impactful way and I you know I think that we rely on innovators in that field and the way we rely on technology so much to change hopefully the way that we receive and are able to sift through news to make sure it is accurate. Daniel Pink wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, where he's gathered together facts and data of how the world is a better place. The the, the conditions are better, Mm. opportunities better, there's less war, there's less murder. And although we're in this constant news stream of negative news cycles and identity politics and nationalism and things happening around the world that feel that we're spiralling into a more negative world. Overall, in meta terms, we're actually on a trajectory of a, towards a better world. Leaving aside the existential crisis we might be facing with environment, still the ongoing nuclear risks facing us, the terrorism and dirty bombs and the, the, the threat of AI's existential risk to us in the future if we don't embrace... Uh, um, agreements between the superpowers on that. What's your feeling in terms of having been over the arc of your career in the field, witnessing hardship, suffering, disaster, and bringing up two children, which obviously with a hope for the future, what's your perspective on that from seeing both sides? I always think you find hope. Mm -hmm. I always think that's one of the most encouraging things about our job is that you always find, you know, humanity is faced with such extreme situations and how it recovers from that and how quickly people are ready to help each other and the kindness that you experience out in the field. That gives you a lot of hope, Um, you know, seeing children smiling all the time despite all of the challenges that they face you know I always say oh you know India is such a sort of you know having been based in India which is significant for me you know faced with you know huge populations and acute problems you never felt depressed ever I never ever felt like I lost hope Mm. you know because people are so full of hope you know, and it's surprising. It's always really astonishing. It's always really surprising. You know, I remember the first days of the tsunami in, in Sri Lanka, you know, local people running down the hills with bags. They were the first aid. They were the first aid workers. You know, they're the ones running down to help, 
you know, their neighbours and rescue the children and take them up the, the tops of the hills, you know. And it's just, it gives you so much encouragement, mm-hmm. you know, to know that humanity can, you know, express such solidarity with other people. And I think that really gives you a sense of, of hope. And I And I also think that, yeah, it's hard. It's hard bringing up children in a world where you think, gosh, this is... And, you know, naturally, being a journalist, you're a consumer of news probably in you know very high rates Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and and it can be incredibly negative and I also actually think that Facebook actually you know there's so many great stories that you read on on the platform that it again gives you hope you know seeing teenage teenagers you know who are taking taking matters into their own hands and Mm -hmm. becoming the relevant leaders of tomorrow that gives you hope it gives you a sense of well you know I hope my child can achieve this i hope yeah, i mean you know the, the kids at park um parkland yeah after that was inspiring and certainly instilled hope in yeah terms and of i the think you know i think politics i think children naturally are hopeful i think children are naturally optimistic i think children are positive generally fearless. yeah fearless mm. you know more creative than us and i hate to think that we be- become more cynical as we get older you know to kind of drain that out of them mm-hmm. and I, I think it's nice to that children you know to having children it's a redress of that balance and I very much see my my own children as their own creation you know that we just sort of impart our, our experiences and you know give them experiences but they are their own individuals at the end of the day and I see them both as, as really positive people and so that's that's quite encouraging although you know my son he's he's 12 and he does say you know what's the point of having children you know I'm not going to have children in the future what world are we giving them and despite that he remains optimistic Mm -hmm. and so that I find that quite extraordinary because he's he's very much rooted in the real world and all the fears that we have but he's still positive about his future and what he wants to be and what he wants to achieve and so I find that kind of you know maybe that's a reflection of parenting that we you know we also see the world in the way Mm -hmm. that we do and he's you know he's taken that on, but he remains optimistic, which is which is wonderful. Well, he's also got two very good role models in terms of um, the belief that you can make a difference in the world. Yeah, there's a couple of things on in reaction to what you just said. Um, Bettina, um, our producer, and myself were in London yesterday and went to see the Don McCullen exhibition at the Tate, which was extraordinary, and it's and it finishes on Saturday, I think. But for anyone that can get hold of um, or go to see, if it is appearing anywhere else in the world, please go and see it. The thing, that, well, a couple of things that struck me. One was his overriding passion and for India that he said it was probably of all the places he's been, the place that amidst all the suffering and the pain and the poverty is the optimism and his belief and sense of um, uplifting yeah, the uplifting effect it had on him by seeing the optimism of the people and the passion, and particularly in the children, and that's something that he, he was written on the walls there and, and came through in his images. And secondly, was the fact that he said that it's albeit through the, the the pain and the suffering and the destruction that he's witnessed and the destructive power of humanity is that he brought managed to bring up five children into this world. And I think um, you've mentioned once before that Dan had 
actually interviewed him. Yeah, we met Don um, a few years ago, and he's a wonderful character and just an inspiration. You know, he I think he is what journalism is about. You know, he's a working class lad who kind of stumbled into journalism, you know, picked up a camera, was kind of hanging around the streets and went on to have this incredible career and took huge risks to bring back photographs and continued on this relentless battle to be out in the field. And again, he told me the whole thing about India. He said, I I love India. He said, it's just for me, it's the most magical place. You know, and it is because there's so much there's so many challenges and yet I think we go back to this thing of when you you know it's about the kismet and Mm. the karma it's like you know we're meant to die we're meant to you know we a few people in Silicon Valley try (laughs) challenge that (laughs) no but we know that we will die one day Mm. you know you hear it as you're as you're a child in your community in the Indian community that it's all meant to happen it's all meant to be so it's almost like not a burden Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a whole nation to kind of grow up around that kind of feeling is that you're, you're born to what you are and that's your destiny. It almost brings like a calming effect mm-hmm. on people. You know, they're not kind of feel that they need to strive to sort of have this, have that, do this, do that. You know, they're almost kind of content with their lot so they can kind of live with it, mm-hmm. which is a hard thing to do for the rest of us, I think. And that's... I think reflected in you know why people find it quite a calming mm-hmm. spiritual kind of place to it's be in. Funny, I was at a, um, a conference at UPenn last late last year called um, Global Futures, I think it was, and Joe Biden was speaking um, and a few other interesting people. But Richard Verner was there, who was the ex US ambassador to the India, and he he just. Gave this in his introduction. He said, "You have to realise that India. Everyone th- talks about China and America and where where the, this century is going. He said, but if you look at it in terms of by 2030, the world's biggest democracy, the most diversity, the greatest number of student graduates, the most women in business in running businesses will be India." And he gave this list of achievements that China that India will reach between 2030 and 2050. When people talk about the American century of the last century and this century, I think this century could potentially be the Indian century. Forget about China. And and with that national character that you talk about, I think there is hope for the world because the impact that India could have on the rest of the world if it achieves its growth statistics, the impact it has on, on entrepreneurship, on empowerment, diversity, democracy it might create a new benchmark for the future. Well, you know, I I actually worry about India. You know, I I worry about the sustainability of economic growth Mm. in terms of the environment. You know, we're seeing huge waves of, you know, the country, you know, heavily polluted. We Mm. have some of the most polluted rivers in in the world. Poverty is still acute. Hunger is still an issue. You know, even though India wastes huge amounts of money, young people are money in their pockets they have a very luxurious lifestyle who you know the ones who are educated and working in you know global companies and they regularly eat out in restaurants and yet you have slums nearby where children are not getting a square meal a day and never going to have the opportunities bestowed on the people around them so I think India has a long long way to go in terms of equality I think that whole sense of we are we are in the position that we are and we accept that is also a hindrance because 
you do have a caste structure. You know, we have a class structure in the UK, but in India you have a caste structure and that's keeping people where they are. And it shouldn't be. Mm. You know, there are whole swathes of sections of society that are the untouchables, you know, named untouchables who never get an opportunity to work in an office, never get an opportunity to work beyond being a, you know, toilet cleaner. Um, And I think so India has lots of challenges and with it comes consumerism. You know, the levels of consumerism. My father left a village with some cows and a a well and returns now to the home that he built and everybody has a refrigerator everyone has a tv you know young men don't need to work in the way that they used to on the farmland so they're importing other um, workers in from other states in India and, and just going overseas so you know the levels of obesity have increased so I think India actually faces a huge challenge much as the US does in terms of its you know, I guess the negatives of economic growth. Mm. And I don't think enough is is talked about that. There's a lot of, you know, India shining, India wonderful, mm. you know, all the IT kind of stuff. But actually, you know, you I've just returned from Jaipur to some beautiful heritage sites which have been destroyed by piles of rubbish, you know, just strewn around these beautiful old heritage centres. And even though India has a drive for cleanliness, there's just not the awareness you know, the levels of traffic are horrific. The pollution levels are, you know, you can't live with that kind of level of, of pollution. So I think those are the challenges that India mm. faces. Don't see it as a beacon of hope. You know, yes, probably for corporate companies who can go in and invest and see large numbers of people that are their captive consumers. I think, you know, that India needs to look at itself as a sustainable country much like Costa Rica and other countries that have, you know, made themselves growing forests and, you know, not sort of giving away tons of tribal lands to big corporate companies. Mm -hmm. It has to, you know, it has to challenge those narratives that I guess have been going on elsewhere in the world. India shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have to face that, but it is facing it. And it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's going to be a real problem in the future. Okay, <laughs> I'll take back what I said then. Um, let's get into the quickfire questions. Okay, I've got to get into the quickfire questions. Okay, what principles do you stand by? Honesty, uh, kindness, decency, a sense of justice and injustice, and striving for equality and diversity. Okay, that's a great list. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but looking back turned out to be the right decisions? Uh, The people that I've loved and the work that I've tried to do, the career that I've pursued, both, you know, I guess they've been tough choices that I've had to make and the best choices that I've ever made. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? Travel and home. I love my home and I feel at peace at home. And I, it's a way, I guess, of shutting out the world and, you know, reflecting and, you know, being at peace. I quite like sort of silence and mm. being a, on my own. I, I enjoy that. And I enjoy the challenge of travel and the people that I see, you know, around me. But, uh, you know, the, the inspirations are, again, always the little people that I mentioned that you meet on the yeah. road or the stories their stories that you tell, they're always inspiring. Yeah. Who have you met that has most surprised you? 
I don't, I don't think I don't think I've met anybody that surprised me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then. I think I think I'm always I think I'm always surprised generally by people being positive under harsh circumstances or difficult circumstances where they face adversity. Then it's always really surprising how positive they remain, and that's an inspiration. That's it's humbling. Mm-hmm. Testament to the human spirit, mm-hmm. the survival. Who's then made you reevaluate yourself? Who's made me reevaluate? Mm-hmm. Who? Who or what? Maybe. Change. I've changed my life a lot. I always feel like I've sort of taken lots of different paths, and they've there have always been changes, or people that have come into my life, and that sort of changed my not my direction, but you know, informed me, influenced me, seen, made me see things, from, not made me, but I'm, I've, I'm open to seeing different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I always sort of take that on. I don't think it's something that I consciously say, oh, somebody made me look and reflect upon myself. I think you do that all the time. I think you have to do that all the time as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, as a friend. You know, you're always thinking about how you could improve that what can I do to improve this and I've always wanted to write a book that's been my dream that I've not fulfilled and I think that would make me evaluate a lot of things in my life previously and and where it is now and where I want where it may possibly go because it's not over yet (laughs) (laughs) thankfully I look forward to that book um how do you keep up with technology my husband and my son And people like you <laughs> introduced me to fantastic <laughs> pens and people who we do stories about. Yeah. I mean, there's just some amazing technology out there and it's brilliant seeing other people use it. So again, it's being open to sort of understand and I may not mes- necessarily, I may not necessarily use it myself, mm. but I'll definitely understand it yeah. better. Do you need to run? That's Mimi. Yeah. It's fine, I'll just... Right, well, we'll just get around to the last uh, couple of questions. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we've had an uh, interruption um, of the, the, the kids coming in from school. So we'll crack on and get to the last uh, two or three questions. So the impossible question, what would your advice be to someone who's just about to graduate, go to study or has a dream goal ambition, but it's being told, yeah, forget it, that's impossible? Nothing's impossible. Um, I think you just have to dream big, you know, see the world as your oyster, and you know explore every possibility and every opportunity that's offered to you and given to you and take it with gusto and run with it that's what i would say oh, good advice what book would you want to give um our listeners that submit the best questions oh the best comments in the comment section um in extremis the life of war correspondent mary colvin oh yeah um <laughs> in extremist the life of war correspondent mary colvin who's tragically died in tragically Libya, died was um, it? Syria, me, syria yeah left me in tears she was um i think her drive her decency you know she tried she strived to do what we all try to do in journalism is give a voice to those who are unheard and the personal and professional struggles that she faced and her bravery and sadly in the end her loss of life Mm. you know trying to sort of get to the story trying to get to the people that she knew needed to have a voice you know and the value that journalism brings 
you know, the challenges that personally journalists face, the mental health challenges, as well as the, you know, challenges as a woman. She was incredibly brave, you know, and I just felt overwhelmed by her, you know, biography by Lindsay Hilsom. It's beautifully written and it's a wonderful book to share because, you know, despite all of it, she comes across, you know, so well, so warm, you know, so sort of driven, you know, to do the right thing. And I think that's wonderful about journalism, Mm -hmm. you know, and it should be held in high esteem. People like her, I think, are heroes. Yeah, well, I look forward to reading it myself and we'll add that uh, as our book. And final question, who should we interview next? Oh, okay, I've got an answer to that. Um, I think you should interview Shaista Aziz. She's a woman who I admire and have worked um, alongside previously at the BBC. She's a Muslim woman who today has become a local councillor in Oxford. Mm -hmm. Uh, She fights for the homeless and for her communities. She faces huge challenges as a Muslim woman where, you know, the levels of Islamophobia are horrific. Mm -hmm. Um, She, her story is so relevant to our times. You know, what she's striving to achieve in mainstream society against, you know, a backlash against Muslims is extraordinary. And I think it's a narrative that needs to be told and, you know, documented because in the future it will become, I fear a narrative that we'll look back at and say, why didn't we listen to people like her? You know, why was her voice lost? And mm-hmm. But she has, a, she has a strong voice, she's a strong character, she has incredible experience in the NGO sector, working in the international, you know, charity sector as well as in, in journalism and now as a politician. Mm-hmm. I think she's a wonderful person to interview. Sounds great. I look forward to it. And another reason to come back to the UK and do more interviews. Well, thank you very much, Navdeep. I just want to sum up and acknowledge you for what... It was a lot to take out there and absorb, but I think we can acknowledge you and and applaud you for your courage to challenge convention from early childhood in Southall to all the way through your career, your commitment to the truth, your optimism for the future, and your continuous and tenacious fight for what appears to be just justice and storytelling and giving the unrepresented a voice. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now... Be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.